well, good morning, or good, good other time of day, whatever time of day it is that you're listening to this, I hope it's a good time of day. Welcome to the third episode of First Draft, the podcast, which is it's a podcast now, it just is, uh, of history, etc. Coming at you today at sunset, I said good morning to you. It's, it's the end of the day when I'm recording this. Why would I have not said good afternoon? I was, I was probably reaching out to you emotionally to make you feel welcome. Now, that, that sort of crunch, that beautifully sound-engineered crunch you can hear is me kicking my wellies through last autumn's oak leaves, which have fallen, obviously, the oak being a deciduous tree. Um... But you wouldn't necessarily have known that I am in literally a dingle. I'm in a dingle. That's, that's what the geolocation on my phone where I'm recording this has said. I'm in St. Anne's Hill, St. Anne's Hill, and the dingle. I think this is the dingle. There are oak trees. There are some reddish pines. I don't know the exact name of the pine. Um, and there is, as I've already said, a carpet of brown leaves from last autumn, which I've, I've been kicking through in my wellies. Kicking a little more than I, I would do walking normally because I wanted you to hear that. As I was driving up here, I will get to... The, sorry, hello, this is the podcast. I'm going to talk to you about the questions that you've... Uh, that the beautiful subscribers to History Etc. have set. That's what this is. That's what will happen. This isn't just a nature podcast. Not even supposed to be a nature podcast at all. Um, but anyway, just as I was... I drive... I come here quite a lot to walk the dog. The dog's been to the groomers. He's looking very fluffy. Um, and as I was driving here, there was a... There were lots of vans and cones and fluorescent signs and people wearing fluorescent jackets. And I was like, oh my God, there's filming. And there literally is filming. And I thought they were going to be filming in the dingle, which would have meant I wasn't able to... Um, oh, my dog's running after another dog. Sometimes this, this is a problem. And the other dog owners would, would judge me for talking on my phone instead of minding my dog. But let's see how it goes. Um... Hello, dog. Yeah, hello. Come on, mister. Um, and so anyway, as I, was, as I was saying, when... Yeah, when I arrived, there was a film crew, and I thought, oh, no, they're going to be filming in the dingle. That's literally bad. My whole plan for recording this episode has gone right up the, the spout or the swanee or down the toilet, up or down somewhere it shouldn't be. But uh, I talked to the, the nice lady who was in charge, and she said they weren't filming here, so panic averted. <clears throat> but that does bring me to a question, which, I, well, actually, it'll bring me to a question, because I can't remember whose question it is, and I'm going to have to scroll through and find out. Somebody asked this week, on Wednesday, when I put out my call for questions, what, is a, what does a producer do? They said, I've heard you've been a producer. What does a producer do? Uh, and that interaction with the filming lady reminded me of it, so I must remember to answer that question. But that's not where I'm going to begin. Um, thank you again, as I've said, to everybody who's posted questions uh, for me on the Wednesday forum. Hun- literally hundred, I say literally hundreds, literally slightly more than a hundred questions, um, which the people at Substack tell me is good. Um, and so I'll, I'll get to as many as I can having already wasted about five minutes of your time talking about 
the leaves and stuff. Let's just dive straight in. And we're going to dive in. Uh, we're going to dive in with an easy one from Gwen Spring. Um, because, you know, I, th- I think we should, we should start gentle. Thank you, Gwen Spring, for your question. Gwen Spring says, sorry if this is a stupid question from an American. And by the way, I find Americans often say that at the start of questions. When they're not stupid questions at all, I think you guys are too hard on yourselves. Like, your national characteristic is not quite... Your national reputation is not quite as stupid as you seem to believe it is. So, no apologies. Um, Sorry if this is a stupid question from an American. We'll strike that out. Gwen Spring says, I understand that Edward the Confessor was king prior to 1066. Well, was he ever... It was a big deal, that, in 1066. Why is, why is Edward Longshanks Edward I? Why is Edward the Confessor not Edward I? Well, the simple answer, which is part of the business of conquest in 1066 was a complete rupture politically, uh, institutionally, um, in some senses genetically, with the character of England pre-1066. That's why 1066 1066 is such a formative date in the history of England. It was a rupture, and everything was deliberately changed um, at that point. So, the numbering system of monarchs was one of the things that changed post-conquest, and the numbering system of monarchs begins, therefore, with William the Bastard of Normandy, William the Conqueror, William the First, and thereafter, it all resets. Everything's you know, everything's from number one again. It's the year dot, and I think you've got to conceive the conquest uh, in those terms um, as an absolute break and a fundamentally important moment in English history because it was intended to be. Um, Now, Renee asked a question. She wanted an episode about badass medieval women. Well, Renee, you got your wish, as you know, because yesterday's post on History Etc. Subscriber-only post, so thank you to all the subscribers once more, is all about badass medieval women, and I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, I came up with five, and they included Genghis Khan's mum. They actually included Louis IX's mum. Afterwards, I was like, is that too many mums? But, you know, whatever. Uh, Genghis Khan's mum, Louis IX's mum, Uh, (laughs) who else? Licoricea of Winchester, who's super dope, um, and two other amazing women. Oh, yes, uh, the Empress Irene, or Irene, uh, of Constantinople, around the time, uh, contemporary of Charlemagne, and I can't, literally can't remember the fifth badass woman. But they weren't the obvious, it'll come back to me, they weren't the obvious choices. I hope you appreciated that. I didn't want to go, like... Margaret Beaufort, Elizabeth Woodville, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Matilda, Bodicea. You'd have been like, nah, they're all, they're all from the sort of, they're all English. Uh, they're the greatest hits. That, that would be the Kiss FM or the BBC Radio 2. Sorry, Americans, if these cultural references don't make any sense to you. That would be the mainstream selection. I wanted to go a little bit, uh, I wanted to go deep into my record collection on you. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I enjoyed writing it. So, And one thing I should say is, please, 
please view your membership your participation in this this project this substack project history etc particularly if you're a subscriber please view it as membership of a club of a community somewhere where you can ask questions because the more that you ask questions the more you drive me producing the sort of stuff you want to listen to next question robin sam sam samson sorry robin robin samson says was there a propensity towards golden age thinking in the middle ages as there seems to be in modern time i.e things were better in my day uh i mean yes i think there there was now i'm not the expert on nostalgia a brilliant academic called hannah rose woods is the expert on nostalgia in fact her book is coming out in may uh, it's called it's called rural nostalgia and it's a history focusing on britain of the idea of people thinking things were better back in the day now speaking personally just psychologically i've got to that stage i was in the barber earlier on today and there was a, a dude who's 42 getting his hair cut in the chair next to me going on unbelievably about how he could remember the time before mobile phones and i was like oh yeah man i didn't say this i was because i was i was keeping still because i was having my my throat trimmed once again with a uh cutthroat razor can't remember if i was telling you about my cutthroat razor weekly anyway put that aside um i was like oh yeah shit man yeah the time for mobile phones that's around i'm always doing i keep telling people how when i got to university i didn't have a mobile phone you had to ring the pay phone and i was someone shout up the stairs and like all the young people i know and i say that meaning people under 30 are like I've heard that story, but I think I think it's um, I think it's a pretty constant historical state of mind to think things were better in the good old days, and it did go on in the middle. And I think one of the reasons that so many of the kind of myths of Arthur and the great the matter of Britain, the matter of France, the romances are all set in time just out of mind. You know, and we've been talking about outlaws and myths of Robin Hood. I'm going to write another piece in the next week or the week after on Gamelin, one of the other great medieval outlaws. Um, one of the reasons, though, those were always set like a couple of generations previously. Or if you think about Magna Carta, Magna Carta's whole um, sensibility is that things should be returned to how they were before and when that before was is, is you know the, one of the problems they get with Magna Carta is trying to define when do we mean the before uh, the protests of the peasants the peasants revolt uh, harking back to this sort of idea that there was a golden age and things have been corrupted since the golden age so certainly in the medieval history of England uh, there is at constitutional flashpoint almost always a sense of is it a deep traditionalism? Is it conservatism? Is it simply a, uh, a kind of feeling that things aren't being done the way they used to be? Is it the British, I want my blue passport back and then everything will be okay mentality? Yes, I think it is. I think that has been going on almost literally forever. Uh, so thank you very much for that question. Now, there have been a few questions. Neil Jones has asked one. How did you get into being a historian writer? Is it what you always wanted to be? And I don't know, I've, there have been quite a few this week about this, and I've, I'm slightly loath to just blather on about myself instead of about history. And I'm thinking maybe 
maybe it's just a case of wrapping all these up in a single podcast episode that you can just not listen to if you don't want to hear me wanging on by myself. And by the way, can I just uh, break off from this thought to say that it's now, as I'm recording, seven minutes past four in the afternoon and I've come to a little grove of trees, less mature trees than I was in before. We're down the hill slightly, out of the dingle. And the sun, very low in the sky, because it's the end of January, is is shining low through the trees and creating the most amazing uh, effect of dappled orange-yellow sunlight on what's still a carpet of brown leaves uh, against the lengthening shadows of the trees, all spindly like fingers. And on the trunk of one, a fat grey squirrel... uh, is running up. In fact, there's three grey squirrels, and my dog, who loves to chase squirrels, is just sniffing for urine of other dogs and has not noticed. Um, more fool him. Let's go to another question. Uh, yeah, so I, I, maybe I won't just go on and on about myself in this episode, but maybe we'll do a whole episode if other people are interested in hearing why I became a historian. It's not a particularly edifying or or like it's not it's not. It's not romantic. Surely isn't romantic. Several people asked about John of Gaunt. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about John of Gaunt. And I think um, (coughs) if I had editing software, I would cut that cough out of the recording, but I don't. That's how raw this is. You're getting the raw shit. Um, Lots of people want to know about John of Gaunt, including Marie Danielson. Um, And I think if if you're into John of Gaunt, go get Helen Carr's book on John of Gaunt. That came out last year, I believe, in hardcover. Uh, Helen's a, a wicked, up-and-coming... Up-and-coming, is that patronising? She's up-and-come historian. She's got a podcast. God damn it. Um, so, oh, the dog's after a squirrel. Good lad. Never caught one. Don't worry. No squirrels will be harmed in the recording of this podcast. Yeah, go get Helen Carr's book on John of Gaunt. It's good. It's good. And it's very readable. It's like... Um, it's popular history. Uh, and what else? What else? What else? What else? That here's a great question. Sarah Fawcett says, I'm fascinated by relics. Well, you know what, Sarah? I quite like a, a good relic. What's the weirdest relic you've heard of? And where is it best to see some? Now... I don't know if it, is this the weirdest? I don't know if this is the weirdest. It's a weird... Um, it's a weird relic, that's for certain. In the Middle Ages... <laughs> how, did, how did you know it was going to start like that? In the Middle Ages... But in the Middle Ages, literally, in the 15th century... And before the 15th century, actually... Just spit it out. Tell them, what, tell them the, the information... In the Middle Ages, in the late Middle Ages, the uh, Christ's foreskin, Christ's foreskin, cut off when Christ was circumcised. Uh, there was, in fact, the Feast of the Circumcision, you know, to, to mark this event annually. I can't remember when it is. Um, uh, Christ's foreskin was a known relic, and like many of the the best relics to do with Christ, uh, was in the possession of the French royal family. Now. Louis IX, aforementioned, because I was talking about his mum, Blanche of Castile, on yesterday's subscriber article. 
Louis the Ninth was a big relic collector. I don't know if it was Louis the Ninth who actually got hold of Christ's foreskin, so to speak. But it was in France. And when Henry V married Catherine de Valois to seal the Treaty of Troyes in 1420, uh, and Catherine fell pregnant with their first, and as it turned out, only child, well, she was back in England. And Christ's foreskin uh, was believes to have particularly potent powers when it came to women in childbirth. I suppose there's a a sort of loose genital connection there, so we can understand that. Um, Anyway, they had Christ's foreskin shipped over to England to help Catherine de Valois give birth safely to her child, and um, it, it worked. Christ's foreskin. How many times can I say Christ's foreskin in, in half an hour? Um, maybe let's make that this one the last. Christ's foreskin um, helped Catherine de Valois safely deliver her, her son, named Henry, after his father, uh, who became future Henry VI. Um, now, if you're particularly cruel of mind and acquainted with the long history of the Wars of the Roses, you may say that this was not necessarily the best thing that could have happened because our friend Henry VI was about as much use as a king as, this will be the last time I say it, Christ's foreskin. However, that is, that's, that's a, a weird relic. I think that's a weird relic. And uh, so you can have that. As for what have I seen, um, I think... I think it's the withered hand of Margaret Clitheroe, which, if you've watched Secrets of Great British Castles, the York, I've, I think the York episode, or possibly the Lancaster episode, but I think the York episode, and I realise that, having just mentioned The Wars of the Roses, it isn't, isn't wonderful I've mixed the two up. Anyway, I think it's the York episode, because the withered hand of Margaret Clitheroe is in York. Um, where is it in York? bar convent i think uh you can go and see it well i went and saw it i think you can go and see it i think you can just ring them up and go and see it maybe if you ring them up and tell them you're making a tv show it's easier i don't know i had a producer that did it for me but fact was one day we went to bar convent in york and i said can i have a look at old old margaret's hand and they got it out of its little case and yeah it looked like Again, cultural reference, not sure this will translate across the Atlantic. However, Brits, you know what I'm saying when I say it looked like a gigantic pork scratching. Those delicious, salted, dried hunks of pork fat available in all traditional pubs. um, Delicious with six pints of cold lager. Um, I think... It looked, it looked like it would have been nice if, you didn't, if it didn't have the nails. But anyway, I, I didn't eat it, I, so I can't, I can't back that up. But anyway, I, and I, look, I don't know what it's for. I don't know what it's, what it's lucky for either. So, um, but anyway, you asked, I answered. Um, what else can we say? Someone's asked about Lady Jane Grey. Uh, I would, again, we, we could do something on Lady Jane Grey. Uh, I, would, I would direct you, if you're interested in an in-depth dive into the, to the whole world of the Greys, and by, that way, by the way, as I speak, the car noise you can hear, possibly, um, is the M3 motorway. 
approaching rush hour. So sorry about that. Um, Leander Delisle's book on the Graces is very good. I think it's called The Sisters Who Would Be Queen, maybe. Uh, so that's, that would be my recommendation for diving into the world of the Greys, who are all interesting. I mean, Lady Jane obviously gets, uh, gets the most props, but she had, some, um, she had some interesting sisters as well. Ah. Well. Well. What else? Beetle Claire. Hello, Beetle Claire. Beetle Claire, when I, on Wednesday, subscribers, as you know, um, I do a, come on then, what are your questions for the podcast? Beetle Grey was right in there. In there like a, in there like a flash. And Beetle Grey's question was, what's your favourite sandwich? Now, this podcast, First Draft, comes along with a Substack newsletter called History Etc., and we do a lot of history and not always a lot of etc. Although maybe the etc. count is rising in this podcast. But I'll tell you, the short answer is my favourite sandwich is the Pret-a-Manger Christmas sandwich. Which usually goes on sale around the beginning of Advent. Late November-ish. Early December. Every year. Um, I'll tell you one day about my my years spent working for Pret-a-Manger when I was a teenager. I went from making sandwiches all the way up to head office. Yeah, I was, I was in there with Pret-a-Manger for a bit. Um, and I, I, know, I still know my way around their menu selection, even though it's changed somewhat over the last 20 years. Anyway, one thing that hasn't changed much is the Pret Christmas sandwich. Man... I'm glad they don't sell that all year round because there's like 1,200 calories or something like that in there. And uh, I I would eat that every day. Delicious. Uh, And nutritious, maybe, and nutritious as well. Don't really care about that. It's just delicious. So thank you, Beetle Claire, who who in the thread itself said uh, hers was cheese and mango chutney. So... Um, there, now we know Claire, Catherine, sorry, not Claire Catherine Loxton wants to know about the history of the haggis I don't know anything about the history of the haggis I'm sorry to, to tell you that But um, I don't know I'm not sure how I feel about haggis I will eat it If, I, if I'm in Scotland And I, uh, maybe I'm hungover And I order the full Scottish breakfast Which they patriotically go out of their way to make different to an English breakfast we'll usually have not only much pepperier sausages and possibly some fish uh, and almost certainly a lump of haggis to really test whether you actually wanted a Scottish breakfast whether you're just saying that if you, if you have the Scottish breakfast you've got to be prepared to eat this confection of sheep innards wrapped in what in in the Middle Ages was condom material. You've got to be prepared to wolf that down like that's exactly what you wanted. Otherwise, they're going to judge you when that plate goes back to the kitchen. That's my advice. Wendy Reiner says... (laughs) Wendy Reiner says, stop talking about haggis. Uh, Is it... She doesn't say... Is it likely, says Wendy Reiner, that the scavengers, brackets, 
be they relatives or just creepy people, on battlefields carried home contagion, what with all the dead bodies. Surely it wasn't the healthiest thing to do, to look through corpses rotting in the mud. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? And, and that takes us to the phenomenon of the aftermath of the medieval battle. Something on my mind. I'm just finishing Essex Dogs. I've got the last chapter. The battle's happening. Soon it'll be the aftermath. The dead will lie steaming on the field. And the living will, will regard their continued existence with a mixture of wonder and regret, triumph and sorrow. Uh, <laughs> it's not that melodramatic, don't worry. Um, however, yeah, scavengers on the battlefield. Well, I think, first of all, the rotting thing. I think it takes a while for a body to rot, or so I've heard. Um, I'm not sure that the rotting thing would, would be a problem. However, you're right. Who wants to go poking around old dead bodies? Gross, yuck, ugh. Um, but you're asking about diseases, and and all this really what this brings to mind to me, and I uh, I think I'm have I mentioned I think I've mentioned this somewhere recently here. So apologies if I'm repeating myself, but um, the origins of the Black Death were were sort of attributed to something like this. So sources in Italy in 1347 eight when the Black Death was, you know, first wave was going rampant. The way that people said it had started, and this is like your sort of Wuhan lab leak type equivalent explanation, the way people said it had started was at the Siege of Kaffa, because the Mongols um, were besieging the Black Sea port of Kaffa, which was a Genoese port, and the Mongols were said to have had the plague going round their army already. It was ripping round their army and they were having a lot of trouble with, you know, bare people dying, basically. And they realised something was up and they realised there was, there was plague among them. Plague not being unknown in the 14th century, although this mutation clearly being unknown. Um, and so they started using catapults to chuck the corpses of their their diseased dead over the walls into Kaffa where according to the sources they spread the disease to the living and then you know merchants and sailors leaving Kaffa going to Italy during this war took the disease with them now we can ask and I think I've, I think I asked this in Powers and Thrones we can ask whether that's whether that's possible you know does a corpse really spread plague well traditionally plague was spread by flea bites and and one of the vectors of transmission was fleas shared by humans and rats my suspicion and well i think we know that the black death mutated was a heavily mutated form of plague that was not only spread by flea bites but also spread on the breath there was a mnemonic form of this plague um and i think it's very likely it also spread animal to animal without the flea vector animal and animal to animal animal and animal to human without the vector of fleas that's my suspicion 
which is why it was so so virulent it was it was like perfect spreading black death um but does that do those mutations include this thing being spread from human from dead humans to live ones well i suppose if there are fleas on the dead that have been flung by the catapult possibly yes um so you know not a bad way to get the disease in there so yeah that's possible um pneumonic spreading no and the sort of traditional oh it spread from foul vapors nah i don't think so um does that answer your question am i have i just gone off on a black death tangent feels like somewhere in between those two things a bit doesn't it oh well ah all right maybe we've got time for one more um i'm gonna i'm gonna do another i'm gonna record another episode of this podcast tomorrow because i'm going i'm filming tomorrow that's today if you're listening to this podcast on the day it was released i'm filming in a in like a hype secret location doing some ninja filming work which is going to be really exciting and cool uh so and it's a great location so i'm going to do a a podcast from that location which will be a bit about the location but we're going to do some more questions so i don't want to use them all up uh, before that but last one for this week's episode and i'll release that next week probably last one for this week's episode is from ben neville who says in a pitched battle neutral ground even numbers each side who would win between a Roman army, say Caesar's Roman army at Alicia, and a medieval one, say the Essex dogs at Cressy? And that's a little, little naughty from Ben because he's introduced um, a heavy element of bias on my part, or so he thinks, by mentioning the dogs at Cressy. Well, Ben, um, I think that given... So between thirty, so if we're talking Caesar, you know, sort of forties BC to the dogs, thirteen forties AD. In those thirteen hundred some years, hmm, how much had battlefield technology changed? Not massively, not massively. Longbows, I suppose are on the English side. That was, the, that was a big part of the English success at, at Cressy. The couched lance charge of the Frankish knight, a general development around the turn of the first millennium AD. Very effective. And, and not part of the Roman artillery. But giant, you know, trebuchets and balusters and stone throwers and that sort of technology as your heavy artillery... Not much had changed. You're still talking infantry, cavalry, really. Um, there were there was some limited gunpowder guns at Cressy, but not very effective. So early in the development of of battlefield cannon. <coughs> Excuse me. Ooh, right. So t- I think technology we can say hasn't. M- hasn't changed by, you know, an order of magnitude. So it's not like we're saying, hey, Romans versus, I don't know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS. 
Romans are trying to take Syria from ISIS. ISIS is going to wipe the floor with them, I think, because because of the the enormous differential in battlefield technology. Um, that's not the case between the Romans and the late Middle Ages. And so I think I'm erring towards the Romans because the standards of organisation, the professionalism of the armies, the, uh, the scientific dedication to military strategy, and just the difference in state spend and investment of participants in the Roman Empire versus a medieval feudal kingdom... I think I think the Romans would have won that. I think they'd have won that pretty comfortably. I'd hate to say it. Um, and to return momentarily to the Essex dogs, well, as you'll find out when you read Essex dogs, not a lot of them really want to be there. So then, you know, they're about as much used to you on the battlefield as Christ's foreskin. Ho, ho. I think that I think all this talk of that means I have to put an explicit warning on this now, doesn't it? Is that explicit? That's, that's for me to think about. Oh my god, I forgot to answer the question about what does a producer do? Hold on. I've got to find it first. Where is it? I've got to find out who asked it. Oh man, I've lost it now. I might have to save this. Do you know what? I'm going to save it for next week. It was a great question. I'm going to save it for next week because I'm doing some filming tomorrow. Producing will be on my mind. Don't worry, I'm going to get to that question. Um, so, in other words, that's it for now. Uh, I'm about to walk away from the M3, back up the hill, through the woods. A lot of silver birch I'm walking amongst now. Mud somewhat churned under my boots, although it has been a dry January. Not in a drinking sense, in a rainfall sense. And so it's not too squelchy. Um, The dog, white and pristine as he was following his trip to the groomer this morning, remains white and pristine, bar only a light soiling of about half a centimetre of his fur around his paws. The hill, back up to the car park where I've put my car grows a little steeper, so steep in fact that railway sleepers have been bedded into its side to, to provide a flight of steps. Me, well, I had COVID, as you know, and although now fully recovered, my VO2 max, I suspect, is not what it was. And so to save you the sound, the hideous sound of me panting as I lumber my way up a slightly, sl- a slightly steep hill. Well, I've started doing that already. To save you any more of this hideous sound, I'm a bid ye adieu. Um, I'll see you on the flip. That means I'll see you next week. Thank you for subscribing. If you do, thank you for listening, which you are. Please consider subscribing if you don't, because there's loads of amazing stuff coming up on history, etc. And I love having you here. Okay, peace out, Girl Scout.